Hello and welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation and eventually to get a job. And uh, today I'm really happy to be uh, here with my uh, colleague Amada Beltran. Amada is a PhD candidate uh, in Latin American history here at UC Berkeley. And uh, you can find her on Twitter at Amada Beltran. Amada, could you spell that out for me? That's A-M-A-D-A-B-E-L. T-R-A-N, right? Exactly. Yes. Amanda without the end. That's what I always uh, tell people. Amanda, yes. Amanda without the end. <laughs> yes. And I'm really happy to, uh, to be meeting with Amada today because Amada and I are part of the same cohort. We've yeah. we started uh, grad school at the exact same time and have shared a couple classes, right? Yeah. yeah. Back in 2014. Back in that. Wow. Yeah. I feel like I should be smarter given how much I've worked. You are. Today. You are smarter. I'm you are smarter. smarter. Yeah. I, I can testify like to that. I am smarter than 2014. <laughs> yes. Okay. 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 <laughs> Relatively smarter. I'm re- I'm smarter compared with past Brendan. Um, and today we're we're going to be talking about uh, uh, the history of Mexico and modernity, right? Yes, exactly right. So I'm gonna look. I, as you know, I I might have been at this for like five years, but I don't know a ton about the history of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, can you like tell me when when should we think about the history of Mexico? Like in in my mind, I I, I think of it beginning with like the Spanish conquest. Am I right in that? Is that when we should start to think about Mexico as like a a, a nation that's coherent? Well, so um, you're partly right in that you can start thinking about Mexico as a cohesive territorial nation with the conquest, although the borders have definitely changed since then. But before the conquest, Mexico existed. Um, There were uh, many civilizations, indigenous um, civilizations, who had very different cultures and traded between each other. So there's definitely a very strong ancient culture in Mexico. A professor I really like, Brian DeLay, once explained that if you were to measure the entire history of the American continent with the length of an arm, yeah. um, the amount of time since um European contact is just the tip of your middle finger. Really? So there's a lot of history before before that point of contact that has happened and that we really don't know much about. Uh, unfortunately, that's not my area of expertise, so we're not really going to talk about that today. <laughs> we're going to talk about that tip of the finger. But um, there's definitely a lot of history before conquest. Okay. So we're talking about something like a particular idea, modernization. Mm-hmm. Like so does that does the like the idea of modern Mexico start with colonization then or or, or? Well, so not exactly. Um Definitely the foundation for eventual modernization as we know it today um w- would not be um would not have been laid without the foundation, without the conquest, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um but the origins of modernization, as historians have uh, described it, really come from um, the 18th century. And it's the, the best century. It's the best century. Yeah. It's the century it's the you century work on. Where, yeah, it's a century where everything happens. <laughs> right. So that's when um, some significant changes happened with the Spanish crown. Um, and there was a transition between the Habsburgs, uh, between the Habsburg crown to the Bourbons. Wait, wait, what? So we're talking about Mexico, but 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 the Spanish crown exactly. So is the, important, like like exactly. So Mexico, for I should have mentioned this earlier, but once the conquest was finalized, a longer period of colonization started, and that's when Mexico became a colony of the Spanish Empire, and oh. it became one of its most profitable colonies. So the Spanish Spanish officials and the Spanish Church was definitely definitely in charge of governing um, Mexico as a colony. And how, like, how, like, when I think of, of American, of, of British colonization of America, like, right. the British could levy taxes and sometimes sent over governors, but it wasn't really, it was somewhat British, but it wasn't super British. Right. So I think that a key difference between the, um, the Spanish colonial model and the British colonial model is comes down to religion, which is a key aspect of um, my own research interests. Um, and um, while the British, as you said, were they were, I mean, the British colonies in America were kind of British, but not super British. They were a little similar, but not exactly the same. Mexico was still different, but it was much more closer to Spain in that they shared the same religion, which was a Catholic, um, Catholic Christianity. Mm. 
um, at least officially speaking, although there were there was definitely some resistance from indigenous populations who continue to carry on with their own um, rituals and practices. But uh, broadly speaking, Catholicism was the rule of the land. Um, during the colonial period. And that meant that the, that the Spanish state had to be more deeply involved exactly. in, in, in governing things, not only to like collect taxes and, you know, make sure that, that, that the governors were serving well, but also to care about like how individuals on the ground were acting and behaving, right? Exactly. So the Spanish crown have a, had a very unique vision in that in order to make a person a subject, you had to make that person a Christian. Oh. And so, um, the crown was very invested in the in the Christianization, the evangelization of the entire um, um, Hispanic American continent. Wow. Yeah. Like that's hard. It is hard. Yes. Um, and then they had to sort of um, make it um, empathize with um, the Catholic doctrine of conversion has to be accepted and not forced onto a person, which was all, all which was not always. Um, yeah, a reality, right? <laughs> Which was not always hard. a reality. Yes, <laughs> you um, want to convert an entire continent, and well, continent plus, right? A uh, uh, continent and a half, right? And you want that conversion to be voluntary. That's really difficult, right? And so so that, so that wasn't always a reality. It wasn't always voluntary, um, and sometimes just by baptizing them, even without um, a person's complete knowledge of what baptism really entailed or what it really meant. Um, Spanish officials and the and the church recognize a person as a Catholic and thus as a, as a royal subject. Okay, okay. So so this meant that that the Spanish crown had to be a lot more active in in managing, and that that management was really deeply influenced by the religious practices of the of the crown itself. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Great. So now take us back to the shift between these two dynasties. This is one of those parts of the 18th century that I just don't know about like the bourbons who what were the two dynasties we were talking about there's the Habsburgs right who are inbred and Austrian right right but they're Spanish but they're Spanish yes and then the bourbons who are French yes and it's a super long right it's a super long complicated history um but just to and I won't get into it because we'll get lost in a labyrinth but (laughs) um so yes, the Habsburg crown was the the crown of um, Spain. Yeah, um, was a monarchy in Spain during the conquest and really leading up to to the to the 18th century. Okay, um, there was the Spanish transition. There was a war. Um, the Bourbons won, and so the Bourbon the Bourbon monarchy was established in Spain. Was this the War of Austrian Succession, or am I wrong? Yes. Okay, well, good. 18th century points. Yes, it was the War good. of Austrian Succession. Yeah. So the War of Austrian Succession happens. The Habsburgs are, are lose Spain and exactly. the Bourbons begin Spain. So how does that change the administration of, of colonial Mexico? So the Bourbons had a more enlightened approach to governance that, than, the Hab- than the Habsburg did. Um, and they were very interested into making everything more efficient rather than just making everything Christian. Mm. And so... Um, they, for example, prohibited or limited processions, religious processions and religious parties and feasts, which people really loved. And it was a big draw, you know, to bring the community together and, you know, have the indigenous populations really participate in Christian rituals and festivities. And the Bourbons really limited that because that was seen as just a waste of money, a waste of resources and just not useful in any sense. Um, so they really... Um, promoted a more enlightened um, and austere form of religion, not Protestantism per mm. se, still very much in line with Catholic teaching and still very much as an, um, um, in collaboration with the Catholic Church. But not that there wasn't some resistance from the church itself in Mexico, but um, this was sort of the push, the formal push to make everything more um, enlightened, efficient, uh, transparent. I mean, this is it's less mystified, yeah. less mystic, yeah. less parties, less incense. less baroque in a yeah. way. Yes, less baroque. I, I mean, it's something that I've experienced going to to, to visit some Catholic countries, having been like mm-hmm. just raised an Anglo-American mm-hmm. 
you know, Protestant life that like sometimes there's processions in the streets, right? Right. Are there still processions in Mexico? I, I, I remember going to Spain during the Semana Santa and there's like people walking with floats like, yes. and, and it's, it's incredibly wild and right. it's like a gigantic street party and there's nothing like it in the Anglo world. Right. Except maybe like Mardi Gras, but that's not exactly an Anglo world. So, right. so, so is, in modern Mexico today, like, is there still... So there are still processions, yeah. but not as many as there were before. Okay. Um, and so there are still processions, for example, for Semana Santa, Holy yeah. Week, which is sort of the, the most important week of the, of the, of the year for Catholics. Um, uh, there are some processions here and there for like the Feast of Corpus Christi. Uh, so they kept some, the most important ones, but they got rid of a lot of the most, um, you know, colloquial ones. Okay, so 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 that the difference that I felt between you know Catholic countries and Protestant countries was even greater before the Bourbons. Like exactly. The, Bur- the yes. Bourbons hemmed in this thing, so there were a, we're talking about a lot of processions. A lot of processions, a lot of parties, a lot of um, just public demonstrations of religious devotion that just stopped uh, with the Bourbon reforms. Okay, so the Bourbons have this reform of 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 Mexican administration. Yes. And it's to bring kind of a more enlightened Christianity, a more rational and efficient Christianity. Not just for Christianity itself, but for but for governance as a yeah. whole, um, uh, just to rule the colony. So they were really interested in extracting more silver from the mines, in bringing in scientists to um, examine um, new resources that could be tradable. Um, they limited um, trade to just trade within the colony. So, you know, Mexico could trade with Peru and Lima and Quito, but um, it couldn't really trade with the, with the British colonies in North America, for instance. Because this that because that of the Bourbon Spain, reforms. Because because then that means that that it doesn't mean that that the, the Bourbons are assuming that Mexico won't deal with the British colonies, but that they instead want to control that. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. I, I just want to point out how much of an 18th century story that is. Getting getting the state to fund scientists to go off to yes. to to, to a, 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 a colonial lands and study it to see how you can extract more resources. That is that is the 18th century. So that's where we get a lot of pigments like indigo, for instance. Really? Or, or you started to di- to diversify the economy with things like sugar and coffee and tobacco that previously were not seen as important. Um, silver and gold were really, and precious stones were really the bigger industries. Yeah. And then at the turn of the 18th century, you really start to see more emphasis in other types of products as well. Because when you when you cross the uh, 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 the what does a, a cross we call it the um, the seams of Pangaea when you go between right. the New World and the Old World, a lot of the Old World plants that are very valuable grow really well in the New World because there aren't native pathogens, mm-hmm. and a lot of New World plants go really well. So you didn't know that, but that yeah, yeah. that's a really good way to so do that's it. you know that's why like coffee grows everywhere mm-hmm. really really well except for in Ethiopia and, and and Yemen where you know where there's native uh, uh, pathogens yeah uh, you bring it hmm. to a place like Borneo it just grows wild until the pathogens come okay. I didn't know that I learned a new thing today yeah. well um okay so so the bourbons are are reforming both the administration of the state and religion. Mm-hmm. So this is when modernity comes to Mexico, right? Right. But it's also a simplistic explanation. Yeah. And um, because it's mainly the elite's vision of modernity. Um, it doesn't really, aside from religious practices, which are hugely important for the um, just ordinary population, um, it doesn't really change much about human behavior mm. um, amongst themselves. It doesn't really change much about family formation, the way we see in modern times. It doesn't really change much about the way that property was passed on from one generation to the other. It just changes things about vision and government in a way, but it doesn't really change things about the ways ordinary people conduct their lives. So we're talking about a conflict between two different meanings of modernity. There's modernity meaning like modern administration, which is like rational. You do things in an efficient manner to, mm-hmm. to, to, to try to like accomplish a given ends. But then there's modernity in that like trickier way, which is what I'm also interested mm-hmm. in my research, which is like the modernity of like the self. Like how, right. do you, how do you become like a modern person? 
And that seems, that's like, I can tell you from my research, that's hard. That's hard to pin down. So it's hard to pin down. Um, but what I've found is that, um, using testaments is a really good way to, to measure, um, how uh, these transformations in a society and how modern they start becoming. And what's a testament? Like I I just know the new and the old, but I don't know them very well. So So what's a testament? A testament is like a last will. So it's basically a letter that someone draw like writes before a notary, um, stipulating how property will be distributed uh, once this person dies. Okay. Um, and it's basically like an x-ray of the person at the time. So he's less, the, the, assuming, <clears throat> assuming the person is a man, which most of them were, um, the man is listing. Um, his wife, uh, if his wife died, if he's remarried, how many children he has, um, whether his parents are alive or dead, where he's from and where he's living now, where he has properties, um, what kind of debts he has, who's owing money to him. So, um, what his businesses were like. So it's, um, it's really like an x-ray of, of the most important parts of a, of a, of a man's life. I mean, that's, I've, I've seen some of these wills in, in 17th and 18th century uh, Britain, but they usually just talk about material goods. Like, they're a great source for talking about material goods. A person will list how many cabinets they own and how much the cabinet is worth. But this, these sources seem much richer. So, and they're much richer because of the laws that the Spanish instituted about um, testaments and property and how that should be allocated once a person dies. Okay. And was this, was this a reform of the Bourbons or when, when is this, this was, no, this, this came with the Habsburgs and the Bourbons just kept it. Okay. Um, and it's, it's from a very old um, uh, Spanish law called the Siete Partidas, and it it's it basically stipulated that all property um, of any person should be divided into fifths, and mm. then um, so forth out of out of those five fifths, um, a tenth would go to the church, which is the tithe. Yeah, um, and then. Um, there would the four four fifths would go would be distributed equally amongst all rightful heirs, and so a person needed to establish who those rightful heirs were, um, and um, these had to be by law. Um, the first degree was um, uh, spouses, then the second degree was children, only legitimate children, not illegitimate. Okay, and then the third degree was. Other living relatives, so for instance, um, parents or siblings um, that were alive, in case that, in, in case any of the other, of the other um, people were were not alive. Okay, so there's like a fair, you know, this is this is super interesting because part of the reason why there's just kind of a listing of goods and how much they are worth is that in the British uh, uh, system, the most valuable thing, land is right. meant not to be split. It's meant to go to the uh, uh, oldest son, mm-hmm. not split up. And maybe the um, the other kids are settled somehow. They're given a, uh, they're either married off early or they're given money to start a profession. Right, there was this whole problem of the second son, right? Yeah. What, what do they do with the second what do, son? Yeah, what do you do with the second son? They're not going to inherit the wealth, but so they need to like figure out. So They're usually given something, like some amount of money to set themselves up as a lawyer or an MP right. or, or something. But because of that, you all, the only it wasn't as important for the formation mm-hmm. of, of, of people's life histories because you already knew it. But here right. you have you have this necessity to actually account for everything and then the spanish so the what you were talking about primogeniture and just saying you know i'm giving everything to my eldest son um was indeed something that the spanish were also worried about yeah um so they did favor the eldest son um but they had a particular way of doing so so once everything was split up in fourth ways evenly among all rightful heirs they had a free fifth that's what they called okay. it. The last fifth of the inheritance used to go to whoever they thought would use it better. So usually that was the the the, the eldest male son. Um, 
Although sometimes if they had an unmarried daughter, that was her dowry. Okay. Um, so there were some exceptions, but almost always it went to the ma- to the eldest male son. Okay. And and so we 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 were talking a little bit about modernity in in, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. We talked about how the the transition from the Habsburgs to the Bourbons was a big moment. Um, and before we launch into talking about your research, I just wanted to make sure that that's the last moment that, that we have. Like, is 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 everything? Is that the nineteenth century story? Like, do the do the uh, do the uh, Bourbons just rule perfectly, and then like no. uh, 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 everything's good? Or, or what no. Happened? So um, that's sort of basically the status quo, and where my research parts from. But I'll just make a quick parenthesis to s- sort of give you some context yeah. on what happens in the nineteenth century. So by eighteen ten, um, a rogue Catholic priest in in um, in Mexico declares independence. What? Yes. So like, where, where in Mexico was he? Like was Hidalgo? Well, the, the state of Hidalgo. Um, it's a, the, the town of Dolores. It's it's in central Mexico. Is it is it like a nowhere place? Or? Um, it wasn't completely nowhere. Um, it's sort of not too far from the capital, which was Mexico City, and still is. Um, he wasn't a terribly important priest either. Yeah. But he found a lot of support among um the 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 lower classes. Okay. Um, but then eventually, um, everyone else started joining, um, and it expanded. The the um, independence expanded, uh, just exploded from there. He was actually killed in the very peripheral city of Chihuahua, where I'm from. So it really the independence movement just really covered the entire nation. Wow. Um, and it la- the war lasted 11 years, so it ended in 1821. Wait, wait, there was a war? Yeah, there was a war. Uh, so the Spanish really fought him hard, um, but eventually they won. And he was killed very early on in, in, in the war, but um, other other generals carried on. And But it is ironic that independence start, was started by a priest. Yeah, a rogue Catholic priest yes. in 1810. And so so there must have been some sort of bubbling and, and like right. In, so in there was life. Yeah, it, it was complicated as almost everything in history is, but um there was a caste system as well and so this was a priest who was um of Spanish descent but born in Mexico so he wasn't he was technically a second class citizen because oh. you know first class citizens were peninsulares who were born in Spain and then moved to Mexico those those held sort of first class status and he didn't have access to the same benefits um and he found I mean and the majority of people in Mexico didn't have access to the same benefits as peninsulars did and so that's where he that um, desire for independence really resonated among that population which was the majority it's the opposite of America now where, where right if you're right. born in Mexico in the 19th century you were a second class exactly exactly, yeah. exactly okay, so, so so how does this uh, uh, independence process change uh, this uh, uh, Stuff about modernity we were talking about, both like the governments of religion and the governments of the so state. So it basically, and the right, of it basically complicated the entire story okay. even further. And um, it made it more difficult for um, a consensus to take place about what um, direction the new nation would take. So just to give you an idea, he was a priest declaring independence and there wasn't a flag for Mexico at the time. So he just held an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, who was, who was the Virgin Mary. And he, he rallied. That was sort of the banner that he used to gather people around and everyone gather around him. So this was very this was very much not the idea of a secular nation. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, that's, that's a Catholic priest holding aloft a flag or a banner with Our, Mary, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Is not, right. That is not a secular nation. No, not at all. So you don't have a constitutional convention like uh, you do in the British colonies. You don't have secret meetings of intellectuals trying to figure out how to um, uh, move this country in a certain direction. This was just more of a spur of the moment thing. We're all in it. And now we have to figure it out. And so the entire... You don't even have like the 19th century story or the the 20th century story where you had like 
groups of intellectuals like trying to write poetry for the nation or like, you know, make the nation by creating a new language or newspapers. So that, yeah, that, that comes to Mexico in phases. Yeah. Uh, so it definitely starts in the 19th century and it carries on all the way until the 20th century. But at, right at this moment, there wasn't really much of that. There, there wasn't really much of, uh, you know, an intelligentsia guiding this this battle. So what did this new nation, what kept it together? Or was it just fractured? Um, I think the common interest of getting rid of Spanish rule was the guiding principle. Um, after that, it became definitely, all these factions became all the more visible, right? Yeah. Um, and so... Um, I won't go into detail because we really don't have that much time, but um, it goes through several transformations. At one point, it becomes an empire and they bring an emperor from Austria. I, I know I know this a little bit, right? They, they bring Emperor Maximilian. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they, they, they bring so back a king. Yeah, so, uh, so, you know, the Mexican conservatives really go to Europe and start petitioning royal houses to volunteer someone and and they send their best and their right, brightest right right and then you know austria says well you know this is our chance you know we are the Habsburgs. we were in charge of spain and mexico was spain's colonies we're sending maximilian and his wife carlota who was from belgium and they send them over and you know they hardly speak spanish uh, he tried he was he really tried very hard to his credit but he was just not successful at one point he posed in a tarot costume with a big sombrero and like the local costume, but you know, like a frat boy on Halloween. Exactly. But it didn't really, it didn't fit, you yeah. know, it didn't fit. And so it didn't last very long. He was, he was murdered. Uh, his wife ended up in um, Belgium. Um, but it goes through several transformations, okay. right? So we get to the middle of the 19th century, and that's really when you have a secular intelligentsia trying to guide the nation's direction. So you get a really a more, uh, quote-unquote, traditional um, uh, secular um, foundation for a nation okay. right in the middle of the 19th century. And that's when separation of church and state happens for the first time after okay. independence. Okay. So that's a different kind of like state modernization. It's not just making the state more efficient, but like doing the, that kind of purification that happens. Exactly. So up until that moment, the state really relied on the church for census data. Yeah. So if you had a child, you wouldn't go to a civil register. There wasn't even such a thing. You would go to the church to get the child baptized. Yeah. If you got married, you went to the church to get to get married and you get your marriage certificate. So um, in the middle of the 19th century, the government really starts trying to get people to not go to church and go to the civil registry. I mean, that's that's a that is a huge thing. Like we we we're both married, and like you don't think about this, but like uh, the the ritual of marriage is is really important for like what you imagine your relationship with your wider community yes. to be. And like right now, when we get married in the U.S., we go first to the state house. Mm -hmm. We get a piece of paper that says we're married, and then. We have that paper signed and we do something there. But then we also have a ceremony with a religious figure who I, I don't know how Catholic weddings are, but in a, a Jewish wedding, you literally sign a contract. Mm -hmm. Like we, we there's literally a contract which mm -hmm. we, we sign and that's what the marriage is. And we have, well, eventually we will frame the contract and put it on our wall. But right now it's in a <laughs> box of things that we need to do. But but there's two different moments, two rituals of marriage. Right. Because so, we have two different ideas of what. So that's is. not so that's not a reality in Mexico until the middle of the 19th century. Yeah. But even still, you're not by law required to get married right yeah so you're still a free you I mean, one of the uh, prerequisites to get married is that you're going of your own free will and yeah. so why uh, something that the government really struggled that i'm noticing with doing research is that they really struggled to get people to marry in the civil like civilly legally yeah um uh people just went to church because why would i need some government person to recognize my marriage there's really no point in doing that there is no incentive okay so we have this, we have this thing where the state is trying to change that locus of community trying to say look when you get married to really be married you come to the like to the civil office and sign a piece of paper and basically everyone else was just saying so what 
we're going to go to the church. Yeah. Yeah. And so they really struggled and, you know, they confiscated the property of the church. They really, it was a very anti-clerical government. Um, but people just still did not buy in. Yeah. They just didn't. And um, one of my questions was, so going back to the original question, was how does cultural modernity really originate in Mexico? Yeah. Where is it really, when is it really embraced by ordinary people? And how does that happen? And what I realized was that even though in the middle of the 19th century, the separation of the church and state happened, um, and uh, parallel processes for marriage, birth, and everything existed, um, it really wasn't embraced by ordinary people until 1884 when testamentary freedom was instituted and the law of the five-fifths was overruled. Okay. And that's when it gets interesting because, so by 1884, the government had run out of options to get people to buy into the idea of the state, right? Yeah. Um, they just kept going to church. Um, it's like it's like they keep on having a party and nobody's showing up. Right. They're saying like, we, no, the nation isn't, isn't a, a Catholic priest holding aloft a banner of of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Right. The nation is you coming to a state house and signing a piece of paper. Right. And people aren't buying it. People aren't buying it. So they can be conscripted to the army. They can fight battles. There is the Mexican American War. There's you know all these kinds of things, but. But they're just not doing it for their for their private lives. They're not. They're just not doing it for themselves, which is for me really is a marking point of modernity. They're not doing. There's something in in in, in people that's not different. Exactly. So then, by 1884, as I said, something happens, um, and they institute um, testamentary freedom and get rid of the law of the five fifths, mm-hmm. and. Um, they said, now you're free to just leave your property to whoever it is that you want. You're not required by law to leave it to your wife or your children or your parents or, or your church. siblings or the church. Now you don't have to do anything. Um, now, a lot of people just continue to do it the way it had always been done and saying this, this, this seems fair to me. I'm just going to follow this tradition and do the same thing. Um, but then I encountered a testament that was very unique, and it made me realize something, that there was a double purpose for this law. It wasn't just that it was modern to say you have freedom, freedom mm-hmm. to choose. We're not mandating anything. It's that it also worked as an incentive to get people to go to the civil registry and get married and have their children written on the name uh, on the census. Um, so what, what it did was that I, I found this testament, I found this testament that, um, a man had gotten married to a woman prior yeah. to the separation of church and state. Um, they were both very young. They had a son. Then she died. He got married again. This was after the separation of church and state. And, um, he then had three more children with his second wife he died. He he got only got married in the church, and he left a testament saying everything goes to my wife. When she dies, everything will be split evenly between my fourth children, following a very traditional norm, right? Yeah, and but it then, seems right. like the guy's just operating a bit on 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 autopilot. Right. He's just saying like, look, do everything fair, give it to my wife when it dies, divide it up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then. The notary who is reading the testament says, well, actually, we have no records that the second woman is your wife because, you know, civil matrimony existed by that point. And so she's really just your mistress. So she's not getting anything. And then and then your children from that, quote unquote, marriage um, are just a little illegitimate children. So they're getting only 30 percent of what they're due. Your only legitimate child is your child from your first marriage. Um, and he's getting 70% of everything. So then there's an incentive, right? Now there's an incentive to say, well, I better go to civil registry and get married because I, you know, things may not go down the way I would like them to go when I die. So, so there's something really fascinating happening here. You have a moment when... Uh, it seems like there's more freedom in how a person's going to set up their will. Like, 
And this is important, like passing down stuff from the generation is really important to people. So it seems like there's more freedom. Look, they say in 1884, you can, you can do your testament however you want. Give it to whoever you want, right? But that freedom has like this double-edged sword to it. It, 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 it means that, that, that it's no, you can no longer take uh, uh, the um, inheritance of people for granted. That it's now up for dispute and debate. And the people who ratify it are the state. And what's most important is that the people who define what a family is is the state. Yeah. And they and 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 they have power to say, look, that's you, that's not a family. Yeah, that's not a family member. That's not your wife. Those are not your children. Those are just illegitimate persons. And so um, well, under the old law wouldn't get anything. Right. So if we give them 30%, we're generous. Right. Yeah. Um, well, technically, in this case, under the old law, this marriage would be recognized by the church and the children okay. would be legitimate because he married as a widow. He yeah. remarried as a widow. So they would get everything. But yes, you're right. An alternative to this is that you see in a lot of, in, not in a lot, but in certain testaments that you get mistresses added into the testament yeah. or, you know, illegitimate children added into the testament. Th people who were just formerly invisible begin appearing in legal documents, yeah. which is interesting. But in any case, um, it is the government who begins to define what I mean, what a family is. And really, if, if so I take a look at testaments, but I also take a look at um, marriage records, but, but re both religious and um, civil records. And after 1884, you realize that there's a spike in civil marriages all of a sudden. And my hypothesis is that it is precisely because of um, testamentary freedom. Wow. That there is an incentive in, in getting the state to recognize your family members as your family members. So so this this makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. I understand how the story is playing out, but I wonder what's at stake? Like, why does it matter to uh, uh, the state government that people record their marriages and their deaths and their testaments with the state? Like, what what... And I can reframe that question about to, to, to talk about cultural modernity, but I just wonder, like, what's the big deal? Like, why are they so, like, from the way that you per describe it, the state is struggling to get people to do this thing that they don't want to do. And they try a bunch of different ways and they finally settle on something that, that, that's, that's pretty heavy handed and requires like a lot of, of work to, to pay off. So what, what's in it for them? There's two things in it for them. Um, the first one is um, not materialistic in any sense, and it's just about the state um, gaining legitimacy in the eyes of the people. Okay. Um, so I think that's important um, in any government to try yeah. to to try to establish, right? Uh, otherwise, it just becomes impossible to govern eight people. Um, but the other the other incentive is more practical, and you're probably going to laugh at this. It's just plain old taxes. Ah. So once the state, I, I, I study British history. Taxes right. are like ninety percent of what the right. state does. It's not right. it, like they 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 had people going all around the country and like measuring how many drops of beer is manufactured so they could tax oh it. They gosh. love they love taxes. I, I'm not going to laugh at taxes. So um, the Mexicans were not as interested in taxes up until this point, I think. <laughs> but they start realizing that they can tax inheritance oh. and that they can tax inheritance based on degree of separation from the, from the, from the person who's, who's writing the Testament. So for instance, in defining who, um, who, who's part of the family, the government can say, well, if you're leaving property to your wife, we will tax you X amount of money. If you're leaving property to your children, we will tax you X amount of money. And if you leave property to a friend, we will tax you triple that. Or if uh. you leave if if you leave money to um, illegitimate children, we will first of all they won't be due everything that you you know they will only be due thirty percent of what's assigned to them. And even then, we're gonna tax like quite a lot. So even though there is freedom, there's still an incentive for the government from the government to keep sort of the traditional family unit, but also to um, just get revenue. Yeah. And there's no way to escape this taxation because if you try to escape it, 
your family won't be won't be getting anything. Yeah, I, I, right. Because it, if you try to escape it, basically, the only means to escape it is by not registering your family with the government. And if you don't do it, your family won't get anything. So in any case, the government is still getting some taxes from. Either they're getting everything because they say no one mentioned this testament as your family, according to our records, some of your family, according to our records, or we're getting a sizable amount from taxes if we recognize that you, that these people are your family. So so part of your work looks at these local documents exactly. as a way of, of, of looking at a hinge between these two different kinds of modernity between like an efficient modernity of the state and like an everyday cultural modernity of the person. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about mostly stuff on the state end in part because mm -hmm. it's like more familiar and easier. But but tell me about how these things change on the on the cultural end, on the people end, as all these things are happening, starting in 1810. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do, what do you see? How do you see families change? So I really, there's really not a lot of noticeable change. Um, one of the fields of history that I really love is family history, because I think it really opens the window to examining a lot of larger narratives and how it yeah. affects just ordinary lives. Well, and I, 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 we've talked about family history in the past, like everybody's been a child. Exactly. And like we, Just by the fact that a person exists, that means that there was a mother and a yeah. father. And so there was yeah. a family. And it's sort of the most basic common denominator of all, of all yeah. humans. And right, right now in, in in, in the uh, culture that we live in, like families are are considered optional and like the individual is paramount. And you can kind of imagine people as like not existing with their families. But once you like start looking at the families, you have to ask who's boiling the water to wash the clothes? Exactly. Like who's, who's feeding the kids and taking care of them? Like, yeah. I So it's one of my favorite fields. But um, throughout what family historians have noted about Mexico during this period is that from the long 19th century, so 1780s to 1910, there's really not a lot of change in Mexico hmm. up until 1884. Really? So what a lot of people were looking at is that, well, you know, divorce laws in 1912, that really just changed everything in Mexico. But I argue that there's something be, there's something that happens before divorce laws. Yeah. That there is an incentive. I mean, how do people get to say the government defines who I'm married to? Yeah. How do they get there? How do we get to divorce? And the reason is property, pure and simple. Well, so, so tell me. It's the regulation me, of private property. Tell me how that, that change in 1884 affects families. Like, like do people suddenly start treating their families differently or, or, or configuring them differently? Or can you, can you, is that, is that like the wrong sort of question? No, it's not the wrong so, sort of question. And the answer is that it, they don't, so family formation doesn't change immediately. Yeah. Um, you definitely do start seeing, um, um, more noticeable changes in family formation later on in the 20th century after the revolution. During this time period, really nothing much changes except that the the family becomes a public institution as opposed to a merely private one and a religious one. Yeah. Um, so in, in giving the reins of family definition to the government, um, you're also giving the reins to divorce to remarriage, to um, later on, there is there is ties. Uh, historian has, has has written about the ties between divorce and then um, contraception and the, the contraception campaigns of the 1960s that the government really instituted to reduce family size and incentivize um, smaller families. So, but it all comes down. It all comes back to property yeah. to, to the regulation of private property through testamentary behavior. Okay, so what we're seeing is 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 a change of of of, of who kind of gets to say that a family exists. Exactly. And, and what realm that is. Because I don't know how it is in in in, in Catholicism, but in, in Anglicanism, uh, you're married if you're married. If you say you're married and it's public, you're married. You can't right. if you do it in the church originally, uh, that's done merely for publicity's sake. Mm -hmm. Like you get married in the church so that everybody knows you're married, but a marriage is a promise between two people. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're not married beforehand, that promise keeps. Mm -hmm. You can be married legally if you just say, hey, we're married, right? Okay. 
Um, is that is that similar in Catholic world? So no, in Catholic world is different. So it does. There is this sense of uh, both agreement and agreeing with uh, the spouse and saying, you know, we are to get married and we're going to be exclusive and this is going to be, you know, our marriage. But it does have to be recognized by a priest because okay. it is a sacrament. So okay. it's different than in the Anglican tradition, um, and it does have to happen in a church. And by by necessity of happening in a church, it becomes a more public event, right? Okay. So um, there is the element of public recognition. You need the, the community needs to know that this person is married. But the community is 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 centered around who comes into the church and around this physical space. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then we change from that to a kind of documentary, right? Which doesn't necessarily thing. have to be public. Yeah. Um, but it happens in a public institution. Yeah. Um, but the public's di- like it's a different sort of public. Like it's it's different. It's a different public to like walk into a church, like and does it happen during mass or or is it yeah, it happens during mass. So like you know, it's not like a wedding now where like you rent out the church for yourself and all your friends and family come. No, it's during mass, like when everybody's coming, right? Right. Everyone can come. Everyone exactly. can come. Everyone can come. And it's the, yeah. the place where, so like, it's just like you go to mass like normal and yeah. you get married. Yeah. To this day, you may go to mass and then, oh, a wedding is happening. It's, and it's usually like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be here for an extra half hour, right? <laughs> it's going to take so long. An extra half hour. That's a fa- That's a quick marriage. That's fast. Right. I mean, it's like an hour for mass and then an extra half okay. hour for so it's you're there for like an hour and a half so it's it, is, it ends up being a little longer but, but 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 it's it's public in the sense that everybody can look at it and but then the public and is different when you go into a state marriage which is like it's public in that it's in a public document that you could look up right or, or? I, right exactly um the, the other thing is that there is no preparation for civil marriage right uh, whereas from the church, you really do have to receive preparation from a priest, and really he has to be convinced really? that you're that you're honest and serious about your intentions, and that you know, and then and then he'll officiate the wedding. Um, so in you know, in the civil world, that's not the case. As yeah. long as there's agreement, that's enough. Okay. So there are differences. Um, at this point, again, the differences are not that notorious, but they lay the foundation for the changes that we see later on in the 20th century. And what my my research is trying to figure out is, is I mean, parts from the observation that unprecedented changes to individualism and family life and family formation happened during the 20th century. And the question is, why, yeah. where does it come from, and how did it happen? How did we get there? Um, and I think the answer comes down to this, the, to the, this particular law. A shift, a shift in, 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 in how people understand the family to be rooted that happens because uh, the state is able to uh, 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 govern inheritance and and most importantly to cede authority from what they perceive to be exclusively the realm of the church in determining you know human relations and determining human sexuality and determining um family you know uh, just ordinary life um and ceding it over to the government and, and, and is- i think it's it's a it's a it's a it's um I don't want to say subtle because it is a big change, but it is, it's not allowed transformation, right? People can At miss least it. not, right? People can miss it. And I think it's, they have, they have missed it. Yeah. At least historians have missed it. But um, I think it's important. I think it's important because it determines, um, it sets the tone for, for family history for the rest of the, of the century. Why? So I have a, one, one question sure. just to end. And it's a big question. We've talked about this kind of, that, that there's some sort of subtle nature to the to this change. We've we've kind of talked around it. There's an individualism versus like a communalism. But what do you see like it, as far as possible in, in 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 this format? But what do you see the nature of this cultural modernity to be? Is it an individualism? Is it uh, uh, the primacy of the state over other institutions? Is it a kind of uh, uh, a moral efficiency, like what's 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 the nature of that um, of that way of being? I think that the nature. Uh, I, I think it's a very pointed and a very important question, 
And I think I think it comes down to the supremacy of the state. Hmm. Um, that you know, a modern liberal state should be in charge of its citizens, um, and part of it is um, monitoring and um, defining their lives. Yeah. Um, and so part of it, and, and part of it, part of doing that is determining what a marriage is. Um, and it's something that we keep battling on today, right? Uh, you know, questions about um, LGBTQ, marriage, you know, children, whether they be biological or not biological or biological but not conceived naturally mm-hmm. or, you know. So there's all these questions that part from the idea that the state is in charge of defining human relations. Hmm. Um, and I think that's a transformation um, that we've been missing um it's definitely and i think and for for all that matters i think um the you know if we go back to a period of the reform you have benito juarez and lerdo and all of these reformers saying you know we really need to you know get a census going we really need to you know find how many people live in our country we really need to find how many families there are um but they cannot do it. They cannot do it for even if they try and try and try, they cannot do it. And why was it important to them? Because it's important to establish a secular state. It's important to establish, to gain legitimacy in the eyes of the people. You need them to cooperate with you. And so in doing that, um, the key to success was um, regulating private property in the form of testaments. Regulating the private property, not of individuals, but of families. Exactly. That's a and, huge move. That and the only, right. Because and the when only, we, when we usually talk about, about, uh, uh, things like modernity, or when we talk about the relationship between the state and individuals, we talk about individuals, but here you're looking at families trying to keep themselves together, families trying to make sure that the next generation gets their their goods, families trying to get the honor and the respect of being recognized as families. Exactly. And the only way to regulate family property and not individual property is through testaments. Hmm. And so I think testaments really offer a key to examining these larger questions about, you know, state formation, um, uh, the modern nation state, um, legitimacy, political theory, uh, but it also addresses questions about ordinary lives yeah. um, and how these bigger ideas impacted ordinary people and continue to do so today. Fantastic. Well, Amada, when's the book coming out? Not in the near future. <laughs> I'm not in the near future. There's a baby coming first. So. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for 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 coming. If uh, uh, you have an article or anything, we'll we'll definitely tweet about it. Yes, this thank is you. Fantastic stuff. Uh, thanks, Amada, for for coming on. Um, thank you to everybody who listens and tells their in-laws. Um, mm-hmm. If you like the show, tell your in-laws. In-laws like the show for some reason. I haven't heard of an in-law not liking <laughs> the show. Uh, and if you do like us, do subscribe on iTunes and do all those things that you do with podcasts that you like. Uh, thank you to Duncan Barton for our image and Jonathan Lear for our music. Uh, next week, uh, join us uh, again, and we will be talking with Shofu Yin about Uh, Chinese political culture. Uh, Speak with you then.